Okay, guys, welcome to tonight's show. We are live and we're going to be talking with Dan, a.k.a. Dry, uh, Dan Dry Dock. Um, he's a former uh, Navy or Navy veteran of uh, the Persian Gulf and he has previously had or still has cancer. And we're going to bring him into the room. So with no further ado, let's welcome Dan into the room. Evening, Dan. If you just want to say hello to people who are going to be tuning in. Hey, Johnny, how you doing? Hey, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And uh, it's an honor and privilege to uh, be able to share my uh, journey with uh, you and your team uh, from across the pond. I'm over here in California, USA. <laughs> You're living the dream. You're, I'm, I'm jealous. I, although Wales is beautiful, I am sort of uh, in the midst of winter, shall we say. And um, mm. I could definitely do with a nice trip to California for sure. <laughs> Come on by. We got plenty of room. <laughs> um, so, Dan, um, obviously, looking on your page, you have had um, a cancer. Uh, was it pancreatic cancer that you mentioned, or a hereditary cancer of some description? Yeah, my I have a hereditary colon cancer syndrome, so I had um, uh, stage zero colon cancer. That's amazing. Um, and are you? Mm. Or a veteran, a Navy veteran. So, do you mind talking to me a bit about your about like uh, your history, sort of uh, about your service, where you served, and uh, a little bit of detail in around that, and then sort of what happened towards the end of service? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and by the way, anything I say, uh, I can neither confirm or deny. I had this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I served twenty two years on active duty in the Navy, and I um, I was assigned to seven different ships through my 22 year career. And three of those ships were deployed at different times to the Persian Gulf. So I'd been over there on deployments in 92, 95, and uh, 2001 before 9-11. And then I had um, orders or assignment. My, next, my last assignment was in, um, in Bahrain, which is a little island off the coast of Saudi Arabia. Uh, got there a week before we started the Operation Enduring Freedom campaign, and I stayed over there on the ground for um, two solid years. So we, I was over there when we kicked off Operation Enduring and Operation Iraqi Freedom um, campaigns. That's really impressive. So um, what what did you find, like, we're going to slightly off topic, what did you find the main difference mm -hmm. was between the two campaigns? So Because um, obviously there was there was a bit of a significant difference in terms of the depth in which they went to. Well, I was in communications at the station there in Bahrain. So we provided a, all the um, frequency support for the ground units, uh, surface ships. Uh, so um, we were really busy. I mean, you can, uh, I, as you can imagine, the, these campaigns were, they just, required so much of our mental, you know, um, ability to just maintain a positive, uh, you know, um, outlook. And um, I just, I just know what we were involved with. Um, I'd heard different stories from different uh, uh, veteran buddies, some of my shipmates um, and other military. We had a lot of allied forces there. So I know in Bahrain for Enduring Freedom, that seemed to be the uh, everyone came through Bahrain before they went over to um, uh, Afghanistan. And then for Iraqi Freedom, it seemed like a majority of the troops were going up to uh, Kuwait. So um, that's really all I know about that, because like I said, we were we were just so busy um, just keeping up with uh, the uh, the various uh responsibilities that we had on a day-to-day watch-to-watch -watch basis, actually. Man, that's amazing. And thank you so much for your service. I, I currently still serve myself in uh, the British Army. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting period in time. It's hard to believe that that is now 20, nearly 20 years ago, if not almost exactly 20 years ago for certainly the start of those operations. Quite scary. Yeah. I notice uh, you're quite fresh faced as well in some of the photographs um, on your page that link you to that <laughs> time. So it's like, you know, it's it's it scares me that that is that long ago now. 
Um, so when did you start to get symptoms? Were you always aware that you were at risk to um, this cancer or was it something that was new to you? And when did that all start for you? Well, you know, the thing is um, I didn't have any symptoms and we don't have any family history. I'll just, you know, get, get to that point. Um, I went when I was uh, 50 actually 51, scheduled my colonoscopy, my first and only colonoscopy at the Veterans uh, Healthcare System. I was in Hawaii at the time. This was in 2012. I retired in 2003, and I go through annual checkups with the, at the VA um, Medical Center every uh, year. And we always talked. You know, when I turned 50, you know, scheduled colonoscopy. And... We had had the colonoscopy, and the the results revealed 100 polyps embedded throughout my colon, rectum, and anus. And there was one of the polyps was causing an 80% blockage in my traverse colon. So the um, the uh, recommendation was for me to go next door to Triple Army Medical Center to see the certified genetic counselor to have a gene sequencing DNA test to um, determine if there was an underlying issue. And we, I went over there, sat down with the genetic counselor and one of the colorectal surgeons. Actually, um, they're both colleagues of Dr. Henry T. Lynch. And uh, just moving forward to that, uh, Dr. Lynch is the founding father of hereditary cancer research. Well. Um, the mutation they thought that I had was FAP, familial adenomatose polyposis. And um, when the results came back, which was about six weeks later, um, and I had enough time to read as much as I could about FAP, which is what they thought I had when the results came in, it revealed that I had attenuated FAP. And uh, the difference. FAP has an earlier onset, and AFAP has a later onset. So the window for AFAP is 50 to 55. So I was right there in that window. And when those results came back, I sat down with my colorectal surgeon and genetic counselor, and the recommendation in the best practice of medicine that has a to have a total proctocolectomy with an ileostomy. And... So that surgery was going to be two weeks later. I already agreed that that was the best move because I didn't want to take any chance of of the of the uh, condition getting um, get turning the cancer into my bloodstream. So I never had any symptoms. I never had any indication anything was going on, and it was a total surprise to my GI team as well as the genetic counselor and my colorectal surgeon. So um, That must have been an exceptionally scary period. Like, how did you feel coming like in for what would be a routine checkup for that time in life to then being faced with all of these issues and problems? Like, how did that uh, make you feel? Well, at first, I, um, I look back on my military experience and all the the things that I've been exposed to as far as, uh, you know, the on the shipboard life, uh, just different in missions that you're part of and everything. So my mindset was I tend not to think about things I'm unable to control, such as medical issues. What I can control is my positive attitude. And after five decades on God's green earth, my positive attitude has brought me this far. Why change now? And another outlook I had was uh, worrying is not the cause of my condition. Therefore, worrying is not going to make it go away. And I look back at some of my Marine buddies. Their mantra was adapt, improvise, and overcome. So I was, I, I took that on board as well. I embraced this. I embraced it, and I knew that um, it wasn't going to be an obstacle for me. It was going to be a challenge. And the challenge is to uh, overcome adversity. I've uh, been... I've experienced a lot of adversity in the military, both professionally and um, personally. So 
You know, this was just, you know, I'm up for the challenge. And I asked lots of questions to a medical team, um, both at the VA and the Triple Army Medical Center where I had the surgery. And uh, it was just amazing. It really is. And it still is amazing. I enjoy the journey. I've learned a lot. I mean, I've still got a lot to go. I mean, I'm only, I'm new in this. I'm only eight years into this. I mean, I know I have colleagues that have had this, uh, you know, an ostomy for, you know, 30, some of them 30 plus years. So I'm just a young pup when it comes to, uh, you know, to the condition. Now the hereditary part, um, that, uh, let me just jump forward. The hereditary colon syndrome I have will impact other organs. So it's already manifested in my stomach and small intestine. In fact, uh, we're at the point now because I have to have routine surveillance, which is every 12 months um, as of last September. Now it's going to be every six months for uh, the do uh, three different types of scopes in my stomach and small intestine. And I've actually been referred to uh, Stanford University Cancer Center for uh, pancreas sparing duodenectomy resection, meaning they're going to take out the lower two parts of my stomach and about 10 centimeters of my small intestine and my gallbladder, and um, they're going to do some resections. We have to spare the pancreas because we we um, we need uh, to avoid the the uh, hereditary cancer uh, syndrome AFAP to reach my pancreas because then uh, that's going to be a whole different story. So this is all preventive. Um, it was my uh, understanding that this is the best practice of medicine to, uh, to consider this surgery. And I knew this was coming down the line. I knew this six years ago um, that I'm going to get to a juncture in my life where I'm going to have to, I'm going to be faced with another surgery. So, um, but I have no symptoms, no side effects. I'm not on any medication, uh, no chemo, no radiation. I just, uh, I just take this, um, you know, my journey, uh, each, each moment I'm enjoying it and, uh, you know, just, uh, go about, you know, my mantra is always forge ahead with a purpose. And, um, that's actually, a, a spinoff of the acronym AFAP. So that's just, you know, uh, just different ways that my mind works to keep me moving forward, you know, in a positive manner. You know, I send out positive vibes, positive thoughts. I get that back tenfold and it just keeps me going. And that's actually uh, one of the reasons I ended up getting uh, the opportunity to collaborate with you and your uh, on your platform is because, you know, I'm, I'm always reaching out, looking for opportunities uh, locally, nationally and uh, internationally to share my journey. Well, Dan, I think it's, that's really impressive. And, you know, your mindset and your process that you're going through is, yeah, is nothing but amazing. And to be able to hold that presence of mind uh, through all the stuff that is coming at you is, you know, it's testament to yourself. Uh, so for the people uh, that are tuning in, who is Dan? Who is Daniel? Who is Daniel? Yeah. Okay, I was born in uh, Philadelphia in uh, November of 1960. My dad worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad, so we had uh, relocated several times um, while I was growing up. And I, uh, we ended up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, Illinois. And I, uh, when I graduated high school, uh, two years out of, after high school, I joined the Navy. I wanted to travel and I wanted to travel the world and, and uh, the opportunity uh, presented itself to that the Navy would be able to accommodate my, uh, my desire. And, and uh, I just enjoyed, I've visited uh, 22 different countries in my 22 year career. I count the countries that I visited, whether I flew through them or, you know, a port visit, I count them because I was there. But uh, I just love to travel and, I love to learn different uh, customs, cultures, and uh, courtesies. It's it's uh, just a it's been an amazing journey. I can't hear you, Johnny. 
I was just uh, asking, what are the main things that sort of you enjoy doing? Like, what are your main hobbies now you've left the military and things like that? Well, I like the outdoors. Um, I like to walk uh, for my exercise um, and uh, do some reading. I listen to a lot of music. Um, anything between 1955 and 1975 is my favorite uh, era. Um, and then, um, you know, a lot of advocacy opportunities I have writing guest blogs, writing articles for various organizations, uh, doing being a guest on a podcast like this. And um, I've been a live case presentation for um, the University of Hawaii and the University of Texas um, there in San Antonio. In fact, I'm going to be um, a week from today, I'm going to be uh, doing a, I'm going to be a live case presentation on a virtual uh, genetics and uh, GI malignancy um, conference in the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. I was there live two years ago, and um, they've uh, offered me the opportunity to do it virtual. So that's going to be in front of about 225 medical students in their third year of residency, and they have to. We do my we do the pedigree live. We have two certified genetic counselors at the university. And then we have three GI doctors. And then what they do is they, they'll introduce me to the, uh, to the students. And then they'll, um, they'll give them a little bit of information. And then they, the students have to guess what I have. It's so it's a lot of fun. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. So advocacy is a, a big part of who you are. And what is it that started getting you into it? How did you find your way into being a patient advocate? Well, that's a great question. I was actually in the hospital. Um, and before I went into the hospital, I was always reaching out to numerous organizations just to find out as much as I could. And, and as a result of that, when I'd get a hold of one organization, they'd ask if I'd got a hold of, you know, they'd give me another list of uh, three or four different individuals or groups. And so I, I was already geared up for that even before my surgery. So what happened was my wound and ostomy nurse came in. She came in every day. I was in for 12 days and she came in every day and I met her prior to. And so my surgery was on a Friday and I believe it was um, Saturday. Uh, she came in with this magazine and it was a, it was by the Phoenix Magazine. Uh, Phoenix Magazine is published on behalf of the United Ostomy Associations of America. And they have a beginner guide for um, individuals with an ileostomy. And the cover of this magazine had a Army, U.S. Army uh, warrant officer who was a pilot. Uh, he was a helicopter pilot. He, has, um, he had colon surgery, so he has an ostomy. And he was able to, to get cleared to fly. He was the first pilot to uh, be uh, certified uh, with an ostomy to fly and in combat. He was in Afghanistan during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so um, I was reading this article about him. So I actually reached out to him. And I went to the, uh, the, the, the writer of that article, I contacted her through um, the um, 10th Mountain Division, um, the U.S. Army uh, there in Fort Drum, New York. And, and she passed my information along to him. And about three hours later, I got, he, he messaged me. So we started talking on the phone. It was amazing. So that started a lot of it because I'm, I'm like, well, this is awesome. Here he is, active duty. I'm retired. And I mean, what can I do to, to share my journey um, with, the, with my fellow veterans, with my, um, you know, the folks in my community? And then it branched out from there. So that's where it got local. It started locally, and then it went nationally. And then as the months and years went on, I ended up getting in contact with the Ostomy Canada Society, the um, Ostomy uh, Association of Ireland. Uh, in fact, I just did a podcast with with their organization, uh, A Bigger Life. They have a Behind the Pouch podcast. They just released their podcast on me this past September. 
the, the um, Ostomy Canada Society, they asked me to write a guest, um, I'm sorry, a, um, they asked me to write an article for their magazine, and that was published in um, June of uh, 2018. And then in July of 2019, the Rare Revolution magazine, which is based in the UK, they uh, published an article in their magazine about my journey. So, you know, um, I, I guess I can consider myself an international man of mutation. Well, you're certainly getting yourself about the place. Um, and that's great to see that, you know, there is that interest about your story because it is an amazing story. And it's it's important, really, I feel, for these stories to be shared so that anyone that's coming into the fray with these kinds of diseases has an awareness about how they can cope and and see people that have gone before and realize that there is a way through. So it's it's amazing that you're able to do that. Um, so speaking about your story, like you mentioned that obviously you'd gone in for a routine checkup and discovered all of these things. And then two weeks, you were given two weeks notice that you were then going to have surgery and an ostomy. And I'm just wondering, uh, when they started talking about an ostomy, did you know what an ostomy was? And uh, when they um, briefed you on what that was, did you have any concerns or worries about living with a bag? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know how to spell ostomy. So I'm, I'm fumbling there trying to write it down on a pad. And uh, so, I, you know, this was early. This was, you know, uh, shortly after... I had my DNA uh, test and I had to wait to six weeks for the results. I thought it was going to be three weeks, but, but it gave me time. So I got to read about it. So I had no idea. I've never had any, I never knew anybody that had an ostomy. I didn't know how many different types of ostomies there were, and I'm still learning about them. You know, I mean, my, my condition, I have a permanent ostomy. So majority of the ostomates that I've met through the years, uh, both in person and uh, virtually or via email, um, they have um, temporary ostomies because of whatever condition. You know, there's there's so many different conditions that would lead to having an ostomy. Besides, mine was all planned. I've met and been uh, able to communicate with several that had a, a, a emergency surgery and woke up and. It was a whole different world for them. I mean, it's a different world for all of us. It's just a matter of, you know, um, what leads us to um, having an ostomy. But uh, I just I just read as much as I could. I asked as many questions as I could, and um, I was ready. And I and I I never looked back. I I knew that this was going to be a life saving um, surgery, and I look forward to it. And what you know, opportunities I would have to, uh, to give, uh, you know, some feedback and insight, uh, be a, you know, be a source of inspiration and encouragement for those who, who hear my, uh, my journey, you know, there's an old cliche, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Well, about 20 years ago, actually, yeah, 20 years ago, I had heard there's a flip side that you can, there is a way you can influence that horse to drink by feeding it salt on the way. So my point is, if you go out to the farms and ranches and you have these salt blocks, these salt licks for the cows and the horses, and that's where they can get a lot of their, their minerals and you know, nutrients from that salt, then when they get to the watering hole, they drink. Well, my point of the story is, I'm hoping that my sharing my journey will be a source of inspiration and encouragement, uh, be, a, be a source of salt for those individuals so when it comes time to talk to their medical doctor, you know, the medical team about um, preventive um, checkups, that it will um, make them thirsty. So hope that makes sense. Well, no, I think that's a great analogy. You know, is if, if you create the thirst first, then obviously that will drink of its own volition. Um, so, yeah, I get that makes perfect sense. Um so what kind of ostomy have you got? And, you know, how was it um, initially waking up from the surgery with that ostomy? I have an ileostomy. And when I woke up from the surgery, it was the surgery is um, just a little over six hours. When I woke up, I mean, I was really weak. 
Um, but I knew where I was. I knew what happened. And, uh, you know, one of the first questions I had in the recovery room was, uh, did you find everything you're looking for? And um, they said yes. And we'll have the result, the pathology report in um, seven to eight days to confirm. And um, so I just, I was, I mean, I had 35 staples in my uh, abdominal area because I had a midline incision that was about nine inches long. Where my anus used to be, I have uh, had 13 staples, and I'm six one, and that, well then I was about 100, and maybe 148 pounds, um, and um, and uh, you know you the hospital bed were at a 45 degree angle, so um, I had to get up a couple. They had me get up a couple times a day to go for short walks, but um, I knew. I mean, I just. I just wanted my body to heal. Um, there's no resections. So you know, we just took the colon rectum and anus out. And so my ileostomy is the, um, the uh, end of my small intestine that makes the ostomy. And my ostomy nurse came in and, you know, she um, went through a lot of things with me, equipped me to um, be able to, be, to take care of myself. Uh, even had a little DVD player with um i use hollister products and there was a secure start beginner guide for ostomates using hollister products and i watched that dvd and and every day you know sometimes a couple of times a day she'd come in to see me and and i'd ask questions and you know when i got home i was self-sufficient and i've been self-sufficient ever since i've never had anybody help me um and I go in and see my uh, ostomy nurse at least once a year. Sometimes they want me in a little earlier. We just talk about different things. And but uh, no, I just go about my life as if nothing happened. I mean, I've I've learned so much, you know, reading about the uh, the ostomy. I mean, it's one thing that you know, theory is one thing, but practical ap ap um, ap application is. Um, is the other part, which is the most important. So I was mentally prepared for it, put it that way. And I still am. And I, like I said, I just go about my life and, you know, I do a lot of walking. Uh, I have a puppy. We go out in the backyard and go out there and play and just, I don't even think about it. Do you think that your military career allowed you to have a mindset to wake up and stay in the fight? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't even imagine what it would be without. I mean, I'm a positive person as it is. Um, however, yeah, the military, you know, we, we're we all about, at least in my, I was in communications and I operated equipment. I wasn't a technician. I operated equipment. However, we had to do preventive maintenance on, on this equipment. And through my whole career, I'd always been involved with um, being a, a work center supervisor to schedule this maintenance, I had my, had my, um, my shipmates, we had schedules, you know, weekly schedules for uh, preventive maintenance on all of our equipment. So, um, you know, no matter if the ship was um, underway in port or in dry dock, it didn't matter. There was various uh, maintenance, preventive maintenance that we had to do. Um, so that kept me that, you know, I just, I thought about that a couple weeks ago. Um, that was a significant uh, part of, you know, I always go for my medical checkups in the military. You you have them quite often. And so uh, I was thinking about, you know, um, the experience I had with the preventive maintenance for equipment in the Navy and how much of an impact that that had in my life once I had uh, diagnosed with this condition. Um, so it just, you know, it went back to my military, uh, military days and it's, it's pretty cool to think about it though. But, uh, but yeah, the military experience had, um, I would say had a significant part with, um, my ability to, uh, adapt, improvise and overcome. I think that's incredible. And it's such an important part. Um, so for people that maybe haven't got that experience in their life, what sort of advice would you give to those people that, you know, are 
either just starting to have those discussions with their medical team or are about to start waking up having gone through this process and start a whole new life with um, surgical intervention, be that an ostomy or just like a bowel resection or something like that. What advice would you give to these people? Oh, well, um, you know, have a dialogue with your family members and your close friends, um, also with your medical team. You know, jot down questions um, whenever you think of them. And um, whenever you have these discussions, you know, ask these questions, get some feedback and insight. Then um, there's lots of resources out there. There's um, for individuals to and organizations that um, will provide is you know a lot of information to uh, hopefully comfort them and and guide them along. You know, but uh, I mean, I looked at my, I reached out. You know, I started gathering as many organizations or individuals pertaining to um, the, my condition as well as having an ostomy. So I, you know, that my resources continue to grow. Uh, even to this day is I'm being, um, you know, uh, I'm having the opportunity to collaborate with individuals or organizations that, you know, um, that I hadn't even reached out to before, or they haven't reached out to me. So um, just ask lots of questions. I mean, this is a, it's a life, it's a life changing event and it's a life saving event, you know? So, um, you know, I, I took a, you know, I took it on board. Um, I embraced it, and uh, just moved. You know, I just uh, uh, adapted to. Um, and by the way, I have a, I created an acronym for the word adapt, and that's attitude determines the ability for a positive transformation. I I penned that um, probably a year year and a half after my surgery, because um, I you know I always heard the word adapt. And uh, so I just broke it down to where that's, that's what it meant to me is, you know, my attitude determined the ability for a positive transformation. So, yeah, and I think that's great. And like looking at things like that really do help you to refocus. I think like one of mine is pals so it's a positive attitude to life. Um, so mm. one, one of the uh, things we obviously were just talking about was how your military career helped you. And one of the things that for me was the, that kept me in the fight was that I was fighting a battle. But what I found actually as, as I moved into the years, so I've gone through my immediate danger, shall we say, in terms of the surgeries, I've now got a J pouch. And as I, I sort of got out of the, the immediacy of the surgery and recovered to what was considered normal, um, function, I kind of then started to wallow a bit. And I'm just wondering, what is it for you that keeps you in that fight? What is it for you that keeps you in that positive mindset? And like, is there any sort of tangibles that you're able to talk about and share with us? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, let me go, go back to when I uh, was first diagnosed. Um, I mentioned that my certified genetic counselor and my colorectal surgeon were colleagues of Dr. Henry T. Lynch who's the founding father of hereditary cancer research. Uh, he was at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And my um, counselor and surgeon had um, informed that, that I had the uh, mutation. So he been he was informed about this and it was actually, you know, uh, tracking it. Well, seven months after my surgery, uh, Dr. Lynch shows up in Hawaii to do some academic lectures, and he was 86 years old. He was still practicing. He was still doing his research, um, you know, every you know, Monday through Friday in the, at the Creighton University. So I was introduced to Dr. Lynch in private before one of his academic lectures, and then uh, we sat down and had lunch with and my genetic counselor who was there at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center. And for an hour and 50 minutes, uh, we talked about my condition and, and his, you know, research, what 
different um, things he's been involved with over the decades. And whenever I go to a medical uh, function or a medical facility, I have a binder I carry with me with my DNA test results and uh, my pathology reports, as well as my endoscopic procedure uh, results. And so I had those with me, and he ended up reading them right there in front of us. And, well, that that sparked an interest. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to learn as much as I could. I have uh, received some of uh, Dr. Lynch's peer-reviewed publications on the, his research about my mutation. Well, the mutation I've been diagnosed, it's not mine, but I have it now. Um, and so that, you know, the conversation, and Dr. Lynch and I stayed in contact through email uh, um, um, for a period, of, well, actually ever since uh, my diagnosis until June of last year, June 2nd of 2019, at the age of 91 and a half, Dr. Lynch passed away. Um, but I've been in contact with him. I send him over my pathology reports for him to review, uh, give me his feedback and insight. I also had sent a few of my articles that I had written to uh, have him give me some insight and feedback on various uh, things that I mentioned in the article. Um, but that drove me. That continues to drive me. In fact, what it is now is um, my life is devoted to um, advocacy for hereditary colon cancer awareness um, in, um, in hopes of continuing the legacy of Dr. Lynch and um, the importance of early detection. I can't hear you, brother. I think that's an incredible thing. And uh, what I'm getting from you is that it's essentially what is keeping you in the fight is doing something that is bigger than yourself and being part of something, contributing to something that is bigger than just you. Um, and like by delivering to a community, being part of a community, would you say that's true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I like the efforts of, I started locally and then, um, you know, my advocacy then nationally. And, and of course now, you know, in the last three years I've been you know going international. So, and there's so many more opportunities out there. Um, I just continue to reach out. Um, I've been communicating with a colorectal surgeon in Pakistan. Um, there's a, a ostomy group in India I've been communicating with uh, recently. Um, now there's a Find a Cure organization in the UK. I've been um, collaborating with them uh, since the spring. In fact, they just had a, a student... Um, Oh, I forgot the name of the, I should remember the program. But anyway, they had, a, they had medical students. They would pair with individuals who had um, a rare disease. And so I, I, I entered this, um, the, uh, the contest as a, as a rare disease uh, patient. And they paired me with a medical student and uh, she's in her fourth year of medical school at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And she's from Singapore and she's going to, um, she wants to be an oncologist. So the, um, she had to write an, an essay and that was, the deadline was two weeks ago. So it's already been submitted. So now we're waiting for the, out, the outcome of that. And, um, but how cool that is. I never even heard about anything like that before. And then Find the Cure also has um, the rare disease showcase that uh, they put on last week. Uh, it was a three-day virtual event, um, and it was international. And you can, um, you know, so I've been learning about there's other organizations out there and individuals that I've been introduced to. Um, so, I think know, that's incredible. I think more connected with the group in Australia. Yeah, I think I think that's incredible, and the fact that you know you're you're having interaction across the globe and finding so many ways in which to give back to just people that you've never even met, you know, just for the good of the community and the good of helping others with these diseases is amazing. Um, 
One of the things that we talked about, and I don't know if you've talked about it um, through your advocacy, um, maybe as much, but um, one so one of the main people, or one of the main things, sorry, some of the more words tonight, that people have concerns about uh, when they get told about ostomies is things like dating and being intimate with another person whilst having an ostomy and people get a little bit freaked out and a little bit concerned about that. I'm just wondering if you would mind just maybe talking a little bit about your experiences as a gentleman with an ostomy in regards to dating and being intimate with another person. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of my um, opportunities to, um, to meet folks, um, you know, uh, is is because of my um my social media facebook i i try to focus on uh ostomy related and hereditary cancer um topics or updates on my facebook so um and a lot of positive um you know uh, quotes and things of that nature um so when I meet people, uh, whether it's in person or, you know, uh, digitally or virtually, you know, they know what I have because it's, it's all over my profile. So, um, I'm upfront. I'm very, I'm very, um, you know, upfront about it and I love talking about it. I mean, because we you know we have to silence that stigma. We need to, that, you know, the, the ostomy is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's, um, you know, there's so many different conditions, um, situations that we do uh, ostomy surgery, whether it be permanent or temporary. But, um, you know, look at it this way. I knew mine was going to be permanent for, uh, from the get-go, and I just embraced that even more. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to, uh, to talk with um, numerous ostomy groups and locations over the years, and you know, just just be upfront. That's all I, you know. There's, like I said, it's uh, let's let's get rid of that stigma. You know, it's you know, it's a life saving surgery. You know, so let's uh, let's make it a positive. I can't hear you, Johnny. I think that's great. And I think working to reduce that stigma is such an important aspect for uh, the ostomy community because it is it, it is a stigma and it's something that people don't need to hold on to. And actually, whenever we do end up discussing it, more often than not, people are very open and very understanding about it. Um, do you think it's your forwardness that maybe affords you to be uh, a little bit more comfortable Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm very open about it, and um, always have been. And and besides, the more I mean, to me, the the more open I am, the, I mean, the more I learn about it. I don't know everything about it. I know enough that, you know, I'm I'm comfortable with it. Um, I learn different things um, through the. Uh, you know, I'm still learning, but uh, I like I said, I embrace it, and there's. Uh, there's no um, there's no shame in asking questions, whether it be to a fellow ostomate or to uh, you know you wound an ostomy nurse, uh, your medical team, any any other mem members of the medical team. There's no no um, you know there's no such thing as a stupid question. Put it that way, because this is our life, and let's make uh, let's make it as as comfortable as we can. Yeah, I think that's so right. You know, we, it is our life and making it as comfortable as we can is so important. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult to sort of encourage people, I think, sometimes to take that gap. Like you're saying, it comes back to like you can lead a horse to water and maybe shows like this and the work that you do will hopefully make them thirsty so that actually when we do lead them to the water, they do still want to drink. Um because it's such a difficult thing to talk about sometimes. Or um, if you 
don't have that peace of mind or that confidence to talk about it instantaneously or as part of who you are, it can lead you to having hang-ups about it. I think um, I'm not sure how much interaction you've had with other people that have got issues in terms of talking about their ostomy or their condition to other people that maybe don't have it. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I find that people within our sort of support groups, they're very comfortable talking to others with the disease. But when it comes to talking to people that maybe don't have it, they really, really struggle from that aspect. What, what have you found whilst you've been doing your advocacy work? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, I've, I've met a lot of ostomates that um, are very reserved, and that's fine. It's a personal decision. I mean, you know, I, but I go out, I'm very forward, and um, whether it be an ostomate or, or, you know, a caregiver, any, you know, or just colleagues of mine or, you know, folks I just come across, um, you know, I've had some individuals that, that didn't even know that I had an ostomy. I mean, so... Uh, and they say, well, I would have never known. I said, well, that's the, that's the key right there. That's exactly what I'm trying to get across is a positive image, you know, that life goes on. You know, you just go about your, your daily activities. Um, and, um, and like I said, it's, uh, there's a lot of things to, to keep in mind, of course. However, you know, the, the, more, the more questions I've asked, you know, um, from the from the beginning, and even till this day, I mean, um, just just be open about it, and uh, and focus on moving forward. That's the key, moving forward, and that's where another reason why, you know, my my spin on the acronym AFAP always forge ahead with a with a purpose. You know, I'm just I'm looking for ways to uh, to share, you know, my journey as a source of inspiration and encouragement. Um, and let's, you know, like you said, let's silence that stigma. With uh, your profile being so active on social media, have you noticed a pickup in trend in towards body positive images for people with disabilities, for people with ostomies? It's certainly seen a, a pickup in the UK. I'm not sure what things are like across there in California. Yeah, there's been a large, that's a great question also. Yeah, there's been a, I've seen a, a, a huge impact, in, um, you know, increase in, in body positive, um, you know, articles, uh, guest blogs, individuals, uh, you know, um, writing for these um, different, um, you know, bloggers. Um, you know, and that's the thing, you know, we just need to continue it. And, and this platform is awesome because it's going to provide, you know, uh, yet another opportunity. You know, there's, there's so many out there. There's so many opportunities. And, and not everybody wants to talk about it. And that's perfectly fine. As long as the individuals um, are going about their life and as comfortable as they can. I mean, I'll, I'll do the speaking for them. I have no problem with that. I think that's incredible. And you're right. You know what I mean? Like being a prominent profiled person, prominent profile person, three Ps, well done, um, <laughs> on social media and being, you know, being an, an advocate within multi different forums. Uh, it's not for everybody. And I, I think that's something, you know, for us to realize that, you know, not everybody needs to be standing on a soapbox and preaching about their conditioning. Um, I think for me, I just want to maybe make people feel a little bit more comfortable about sharing with people that are they are close to, as opposed to perhaps jumping up and down on a train platform, screaming out to the world. But yeah, I think that's the other side of it, is that people like yourself and myself, we're more than willing to put ourselves in that position and give that voice to the community. Which is uh, brings me on to like my next question is one of the topics certainly in the UK that has gained a lot of traction over the last sort of twelve months is mental health and the mental health support around chronic disease and chronic conditions because it's you know a life changing um, thing whenever you get condition or get uh, diagnosed with a chronic condition you know something like cancer or something like IBD. Uh, and particularly other diseases where there isn't actually, you know, potentially a cure 
Um, you know, and it's it's something that I don't believe potentially there is enough of or there is a real registration yet within our healthcare services to provide that element without someone having to seek it extra. Mm. I don't know what it's like in California. Would you mind just uh, talking about that for us? Like, what's your experience with mental health support for yourself in California? And is there work that you're doing around that? Oh, that's a great question. I've I've never been asked that one, so that's awesome. Well, you know, as far as uh, mental health, behavioral uh, health, um, I I was asked by my colorectal surgeon, and uh, it was actually during a conversation with my genetic counselor the day that I was the uh, results came back with my DNA test um, that you know I needed the surgery, and of course. You know, the date would have been two weeks after that. Um, that was one of the items that was on a list that my colorectal surgeon asked me about, um, you know, having a, a social worker visit. Um, and that's, um, and I actually had several social workers come visit me um, while I was in the hospital. And, uh, but I was, like I said, you know, I was positive. I was forward. Um they always ask us if you need to see someone, you know, um, uh, behavioral health or mental health professional, you let us know and we'll, we'll get you set up for it. Um, the resources are there. I mean, I, I didn't, I did see a, a, um, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, um, after my surgery. However, it wasn't about my surgery. It was just, um, a lot of things on the home front that I needed to make sure that I had um, uh, to prevent a maintenance basically to, to make sure that I was going through the right, um, you know, the, the, or making the right choices, you know, for what I, what was going on on the home front. But, um, but it helped out. It's just like, you know, if you're in your vehicle and you hear a, you hear a noise, you want to take it into the mechanic or if you have a condition, you, you know, your body, you go see you know your your primary care doctor and see if there's an underlying issue. Um, but mental health, you know, behavioral health is very important. Um, but it has been getting a lot of traction. Um, I've been involved or collaborating with, you know, um, Rare Revolution and Find the Cure both there in the UK. Um, so I've been hearing and reading about mental health um, in you know um, recently. Here in the in the U.S. Uh, as well as Canada, to my knowledge, yeah, it's getting a lot of traction as well. Um, but once again, it's you know it's uh, it's important for the individuals, um, the ostomates, um, to to be upfront with their family members, their close uh, you know colleagues and uh, medical team if they need. You know, there's nothing, there's no shame in asking for help. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, once again, that's, that's another, you know, part of the, uh, the advocacy opportunity is to, uh, to be uh, a source of uh, inspiration and encouragement. I mean, we all, we all have trials and tribulations, you know, it's just a matter of how we overcome them. And we can't handle it on our own. I couldn't handle it on my own. I have, um, you know, but it, like I said, I, I send out positive thoughts and positive vibes. I get that back tenfold. So I could have, you know, I have a positive attitude because attitude is permanent. You know, mood is temporary. So you can be in a bad mood. You still have a positive attitude. It's just a matter of how you overcome, you know, that, 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 um, that bad mood. So, I mean, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of sense in what you're saying. I, I think for us in the UK, there's definitely been a shift towards trying to improve uh, our mental health approach but there's certainly um you know we're quite swept up in in recommending communities to be part of and i guess that's you know part of that encompassing piece but i do think um within healthcare we we kind of focus too much on the immediate diagnosis and dealing with the immediate issues and maybe don't maybe screen quite as well to identify the, the population at risk should we say i think that's something that um we could potentially do because sometimes People don't realize that they're in a position where they need help. Um, and that's that's it's not regular, but it's definitely 
a concern I have is that people can slip into states of depression or other types of mental illness without realizing that they're doing it and kind of forcing people away from themselves. And it's, I guess it's, it can be quite a difficult place to be in. I think we're quite blessed with our military experience in having that positive attitude. And, you know, uh, for me, it's slightly different towards your, your attitude and it's more um, discipline and motivation. So whether motivation is great, but it's short lived, it's discipline that makes you attain those goals and attain that getting out of bed in the morning at 7am when it's cold you know it's mm. it's it's similar similar to your attitude i think um discipline versus motivation attitude versus moods um but yeah i, I completely agree the um the next question that i've got for you is is one of my favorite ones in the show and i call mm. it the three truths i basically robbed it off a guy called lewis house who does a business podcast and lifestyle podcast with a lot of people giving insights to their mental processes and about who they are mm. and how they conduct themselves. Um, and it's an interesting one for me, for our community. But essentially, your um, time on earth is coming to an end or about to end. Um, not necessarily that you're dying, just time on earth. Uh, we can take yeah. that as far as you want to take it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but essentially, everything you've ever created is disappeared. So anything you've ever done, everything you've ever created is, is removed and there's no way for people to access it. And, but you have the opportunity to leave three truths, or aka three life lessons that the world you think the world should learn. What would yeah. your three truths be? Oh, that's a great question. I love this one. I love them all, but this is awesome. My three truths would be the first one would be is my mantra: always forge ahead with a purpose. Um, so that's just that's just my life. I've uh, I took the spin on the uh, AFAP acronym, and it, you take a negative, turn it into a positive. Uh, so that's my first truth. My second truth would be the word adapt. You know, attitude determines the ability for a positive, positive transformation. You know, here I am with a hereditary cancer syndrome, hereditary colon cancer syndrome, and a permanent ileostomy. So I've adapted to life with the mutation and a permanent ostomy. And my third one, my third truth would be the word faith. Just in general, what is faith? It's believing in something you can't see. You can look outside and see the tree branches and the leaves swaying in the breeze. You can't see, you're unable to see the breeze. However, you can see the effect of it. So what is faith? I took that, the word faith and broke it down into an acronym, full assurance influence through hope because faith is the ability to have hope in something you can't see and hoping for a positive outcome so you got that's my three truths uh, always forge ahead with a purpose then the adapt acronym uh, attitude determines the attitude determines the ability for a positive transformation and then faith full assurance influence through hope that's my story and I'm sticking to it I mean, I think they're incredible. Like, um, I'm loving the acronyms. Obviously, uh, with my emoji head, you know, we, we, love, <laughs> we love acronyms in the emoji, don't we? Um, oh, but yeah, God. you know, forging ahead, adapting um, for that positive outcome, and you know, faith. I think is such an incredible thing. You know, and I think that that belief in something that you can't see, um, mm. you know, and giving yourself that hope. I think they're great ones to live by. It's it's. I've never, no one's ever actually come at me with three def, uh, separate acronyms that they've made up <laughs> themselves as well. So that's that's a first for me. But no, that's brilliant. Dan, I'd just like yeah. to appreciate you um, as we come towards the end of the show and, and just say yeah. thank you so much for coming on. It has, the short time that I have uh, bumped into you on social media has been incredible. And, you know, the work that you're doing, the interaction that you're having with multiple different communities across the world is fantastic. Mm. And, you know, we're not getting any younger. And the fact that mm. you're doing things as a retired gentleman um, with such a, a, a solid service behind you for your country is incredible. And just thank you so mm. much for basically advertising yourself with this positive attitude mm. and showing yourself mm. that this can still, you can still live a full life with an ostomy. You can still survive cancer. 
and you know it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an end and coming through it um you know cheerfulness and adversity is one of our commando codes and i think mm -hmm. you you are the epitome of that so i i salute wow. you thank you I i'm just gonna pop comment um let me if i have a if i have an opportunity um there's an old cliche about the wind. We cannot, we're unable to, to change the wind. However, we can adjust ourselves. And after, you know, being on seven different ships in my 22 year career, I'm good at adjusting. And that, that is the truth. That is the truth. I'm just going to pop you off screen um, now and say to everybody, and then we'll, I'll pop you back on and we'll have a, a quick chat once they've closed down the call. Right. Thank you very much, Johnny. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, guys, uh, thank you for joining me for this episode. It's been a pleasure hosting Dan on the show. Uh, incredible guy, a lot of interesting stories through his life there. Um, and it's amazing to see just what being positive and having that correct attitude to affect positive change can do and having that faith to give yourself some hope and working for something bigger, I think, are incredible attributes of an incredible man. So that's it for us uh, this evening, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.